Tonight we're going to look at one of the classic passages in the Bible on love, and particularly what love is. The definition of love is in 1 John chapter 4. This is near the end of the Bible, but it's also on your little sheet there. You can follow along that way. The Apostle John writes this near the end of his life. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would help us tonight as we consider this topic of love and we have to face our failure to love. I pray, Lord, that we would not just see our failure tonight, but we would see what your love is really all about, what your love costs you. And may, Lord, we come away tonight truly knowing that we are in your debt and being willing to love people that we wouldn't choose to love and to love in ways that we would rather avoid. We pray that your love would constrain us to obedience. Do that by the power of your word. Send your spirit to convince us that these things are true and that there is no other way worth living. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen couple points from this passage about love, and they're important to make because we live in a culture that thinks it understands about love, but is so, so wrong-headed about love in so many ways. And I've been there. I didn't get married until I was 33, right? 32, 33. Yes, yeah, started dating when I was 32. I always mix up those kind of details, sorry. And, uh, you know, I would say a lot of that time sort of trying to find my way in the dark, I had a lot of misunderstandings about love. I tried to take my idea of love and squeeze God into it. And, of course, it it made it really impossible for me to really worship God because God never really fit into the mold I was trying to squeeze him into. And if you ask me, I would say that while I give assent to the idea that God is love, I don't really feel like God is love because he's not loving the way I am demanding. It's important that we hear God define love for us. This passage actually says, goes so far as to say, that we love 
because God first loved us. One of the most important things for us to understand love is to understand that we're really bad at it and we don't generate it from within ourselves. We don't have some unbelievable capacity to love that all it needs is an object and we will love well. No. We, 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 we are in this world as people, again, with Luther's phrase, with that inward curvature of the soul. While God has created us to be other-centered, we're not. We're self-centered. And even our relationships get used as ways to make us feel better about ourselves. But God comes in and he says, look, look. Part of his grace is to tell us how he made us. To tell us what he made us for. To not leave us just sort of wandering around. What is love? What is it for? What's it about? Where does it come from? He tells us in this passage, and a couple points worth pointing out. The first is, God says love is not a feeling. There's not a place in this passage where it says God just had all these wonderful feelings of love, and he was just so excited about it. No. Now, not to deny that God doesn't love deeply from the heart, as much as we can speak about God having a heart. God loves from the heart. But the focus on this passage, you see, is not on what God feels like. The focus of this passage is what God does. Love in the biblical sense is always an action, not a feeling. It's not a state. It's an action. God says love is not a feeling. It's meant to be seen. You see that here. Look in verse um, 10 where it says this. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The Bible can't really talk about the love of God without talking about what he does. And that's an important point for us because we live in a world that says that love is a feeling. And it's even worse, it's something that you can't even control. It's something that you just fall into. Something that just happens to you. But love for God was never, was never a feeling that he just fell into. It was something demonstrated. And so it should be for all of those who would seek to follow God. It's what you were made for too. Not just to feel feelings of love, but to demonstrate love. Second point. Love is about sacrifice. Again, when God wants to define this is love, he says twice, Jesus came to die for others. Love is equated with sacrifice. It finds its fullest and clearest demonstration in the cross of Jesus, which was an atoning sacrifice. Now, this is an important point because a lot of people, you know, say, well, you know, it's wonderful. Jesus died. It's a wonderful example. He loved people. But listen, the reason that the cross is a demonstration of his love is because the cross saves us because we were in peril without it. It would be like if somebody walked, was walking down the street and they see this building in flames and they run in there and, you know, rescue somebody, this little kid, you know, people are standing outside saying, you know, oh, there's somebody trapped in there. And the guy rushes in, saves this kid, and then dies in the process, right? That would be love. That's the love of the cross. But so many people just think of God's love as sort of just a demonstration. Like, he just runs into a building, but he doesn't really save anybody. The Bible never, never says that. The Bible says that the death on the cross was absolutely necessary, and it is the supreme demonstration of the love of God. The love of God is demonstrated by living and dying in the place of people who didn't deserve it. It's so fascinating here. We always want to, like I used to do, start with 
our definition of love and then try to squeeze God into it. But look at what John says here. This is love, verse 10. Not that we loved God. He says, this is love. Not. Not that we loved God. What we express to God is not even really worthy of being in the same category with the word love. This is love. Not that we loved God. Your love for God doesn't even deserve to be called love when compared to what love really is. That's so important. What it means is we have a constant reference point if we would understand what love is. And the the Bible uses this reference point all the time. In Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul is talking to husbands about how to love their wives, what does he say? You are to love your wife as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. The Bible takes this point and uses it over and over again. You are not allowed to define love as you want to define it. God has defined love and you defined it by giving his son as a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So love, you always have a reference point to see, am I loving well? Well, who are you sacrificing for? Who are you putting ahead of yourself? John says this is love. Loving others, also, this passage teaches us, is the way God is seen in the world. And I've always thought that was kind of a crazy plan of God's, <laughs> that, he would, that he would put into, plan, into motion this plan where he can't be seen except through the people who are called by his name. And while I don't think it's a very good idea most of the time, God thinks it's a wonderful idea. And he does not allow us to back down. He says, this is how the world will see God. Look in verse 12. He says, no one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. In other words, his love reaches its fulfillment. It reaches its conclusion. It reaches its purpose, which is to be demonstrated. God always wants his love to be seen. And, and, he, and he calls us to love in such a way that God would be seen. John says it again a little bit here in verse 17 of the same passage. He says in this way, by loving one another, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, in this world, we are like him. This is the calling. If you want to know what does it mean to live like a Christian, that's a pretty simple definition. In this world, we are like him. And the primary reference of that is with regard to love, loving one another. Are you getting a little uncomfortable? <laughs> See, the more you begin to actually unpack what the Bible means by love, the crappier we all feel, right? Because who of us does this? But hold on. We'll, we'll, we're going we're gonna to help, I hope. Um, I think one of the things that's interesting, when you think about representing God into this world, it's important that we represent him accurately. And the Bible has lots of things to say about God. One of the most important uh, is in the very first chapter of the Gospel of John. Same guy wrote. And he says there that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And I think actually it's one of the themes in the Gospel of John, which if you go to Seneva's Monday night Bible study, the women are doing at our house, they're talking about this. That, that, that we tend to want to think of Jesus merely as, a, as love or as truth. And you might think, well, of course, everybody wants to think of him as love. Not exactly. There are some people who really feel like they're living up to the truth, and they, wa- they want to bludgeon everybody else over the head with the idea that God is a God of truth, and you need to get with the program. There really are a lot of Christians like that. Uh, but then there are other people who are like, well, God is a softy and he'll let you get away with anything. That's what it means for God to, to be a God of love. The challenge for God's people is always to give others 
both Christians and those outside of the, the community of faith, to give them an accurate taste of who God really is. In other words, to give them a taste of a God who is both grace and truth. A God who is both merciful and strong. A God who will not be God on a leash for you to tell him what you want and when you want it, and he better come through for you or you're going to go follow somebody else. No. We need to accurately represent God, who is not a softy, though he is merciful beyond what you can believe. But he's also, he's also truthful and, 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 and faithful to his truth and to his word, right? Generally, you, by your own natural temperament, will prefer to give people a taste of either God's mercy or his strength. But it's very difficult to do both. Again, why, is, why it's so important that our reference for love be not what we want to do and what feels loving to us, but what God has defined as love and the way he himself has loved in this world. L- another point, love is intentional and it requires our thinking. There's a passage in the book of Hebrews that says, let us consider how to encourage one another. And I think that's so interesting. We live in a world that says anything real has to be spontaneous. And that's one of the great lies of our age. And it makes a mess of any kind of relationship. Let me tell you, guys, if you're dating a girl and you think that you can always be spontaneous and never actually plan any dates, you won't be dating her long. (laughs) Because women know that real love is intentional. It considers me even when I'm not around. Ask my wife. She knows a lot about the, the, the burden of being married to somebody who doesn't do this very well. But love is intentional. True love is intentional. It considers and thinks about how can I give this person a taste of the mercy and strength of God that will be life to their soul. It prays, God, help me to be this kind of person in my relationships. Love is intentional. It requires thinking. But love is impossible. <laughs> love is impossible. And that's why one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible is so precious to me here in the middle of this passage. It's in verse 16, um, and it's the beginning of verse 16. It says this, And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. Now this is one of those epic verses in the Bible that should turn your understanding of the Christian life upside down. Because all I can tell you is I've been a pastor for 14 years. I've been a Christian a lot longer than that. And most Christians I know struggle to believe this. Most Christians I know believe in their heart of hearts that it's up to them to keep their love alive for God. That worship is about getting sort of whipped up into a whirling dervish of excitement so that we can go out and live the rest of the week. This is what I thought when I first became a Christian. I remember when I got converted in ninth grade, I thought, okay, I've got this Christian meeting with this group I was part of on Thursday, so I need to find a Bible study about Tuesday because I can kind of go from Sunday to Tuesday and then I can last a couple more days, and if Thursday's really great, I can get through the weekend and get back to Sunday. The idea is that it's all up to me. It's all up to me. I'm relying on my love for God. And I'm trying to do everything I can to try to keep my love for God alive. It will absolutely wear you out. And it's not what the Christian life is about. What this verse says is not we rely on our love for God. It says we know and rely on the love God has for us. And that we know is very important. Because it's very difficult to rely on a love that you only have a passing familiarity with. If you don't understand very much about what did it mean for Jesus to live and die in the place of sinners and you just sort of have some vague idea that God is love and you're trying to hold on to that, it won't get you very far. 
It's important to know and rely on the love God has for us. What are you relying on? What are you relying on? Your relationships will always be a litmus test for that, actually. What are some common counterfeits of love? See, when you begin to understand what the Bible says love really is, you realize why in our world we see so very little of it. Instead, we see counterfeits that people try to convince themselves are the best that they can hope to get. And the first is tolerance. We live in a world that says tolerance is what you owe to other people. We have whole classes of people that lobby for tolerance. But God never told us to tolerate anybody. He told us to love. I remember talking once to a friend of mine who was gay, um, and he was saying, you know, he'd been to a church in town, not a church that I've ever been to, so I'm not going to tell you what it was anyway. But he said, you know, why is it, why is it that, that, that they hate us so much? You know, why, is it, why can't they just tolerate us? And I said, oh, my goodness. <laughs> how sad, how sad, I told him this. I said, how sad that the most you think you can hope for from Christians is to be tolerated. All I can tell you is the Bible never commanded Christians to tolerate anybody. The Bible said that we're called to love. And you know that. And how sad is it that people in our world have so little hope of real love that they think the best they can get is tolerance. And they plead for it and they lobby for it because they don't think they'll get anything else or anything better from us. But you know, guys, do you really get excited from somebody tolerating you? Does that get anybody's warm fuzzies in this room? One, one of my, uh, just this intriguing quote that I pulled out of Rolling Stone a few years ago from Alanis Morissette. She talked about how she came to this great revelation. She finally realized that, you know, that God doesn't really care about how we live. She, she says, you know, I finally came to this realization that he, she, or it merely notes what we do. And she goes on, she says, that puts the onus on us humans. We are the ones who are making our reality. And I thought, how sad that she thinks it's a great, wonderful revelation, even liberty to understand that God merely notes. He just kind of says, oh, that's interesting. Oh, the God of the Bible never merely notes. Everything that his creatures do, everything that people who are made in his image do, brings out something from him. Even in the wrath of God, there is, there is actually the essence of love because he knows that you were made for so much more. And even those who are turned their back on him and are trying to live their own way without any regard to him, even his wrath against them contains an element of love where he's saying, I will not ignore you. The love of God, the love of God is real. And it's so much greater than tolerance. And people who are named by God's name should never, ever settle for tolerance. Tolerance is a satanic counterfeit of love. And we must never settle for it. I mean, how sad that all of these unique image bearers of God would think that the goal in life is for them to all be sort of lumped into one big category and just tolerated rather than loved and understood as individuals. Thank God as well that he didn't merely tolerate us, but he loved us enough to not leave us where we were. Right? There's another um, counterfeit of love, and it's this, codependent relationships. Now, these feel more like love. 
at least the way we think of it, because there's lots of powerful emotions. I talked a little bit about this excuse me, last week, but if you weren't here, I'll just summarize it this way. Idolatrous relationships, relationships where you're seeking to suck the life that you can only get from God, you're trying to suck it out of another person. These relationships are marked by exclusivity, it's just us kind of huddled together over here in the corner. Intimacy, but often an intimacy that grows very quickly. And often, watch out for this, an intimacy that grows because of shared pain or a shared struggle or shared misery or some kind of traumatic experience. A resistance to spending time, less time together. This kind of relationship may be intense and full of emotion, but it's not love. Why can I say that? Because God tells us that love is about sacrifice and serving one another and and willing and wishing and working for the other's good. Allowing somebody to worship you is never, never good because it's not what they were made for. And it may feel like you're sacrificing everything, but in reality, you're a wimp who will not allow them to have to taste the strength of God and direct them back to, to loving God. You allow them to love you as a substitute. It may feel really, really good. It may feel really powerful, but it's not love. It's not love. Not the way the Bible defines love. And get this, even a mutual agreement to use one another is not not love. Because here's one of the most astounding things about the Bible and about Christianity. God claims the right to tell you who to love and how to love them. That's a pretty astounding thing. Uh, God says, you do not have the right to do what you want to do with your love. You are to love in this way, and you are to love these people. We don't like that, but God claims that prerogative. So if you and another person decide that we don't want to love the way God calls us to love, and we just want to use one another, and we're both getting what we want out of the relationship, doesn't matter. God says you need to stop. God claims the prerogative to tell you what you were made for. What are some barriers to loving well? Okay, if that's the counterfeits, what are the barriers? I think the first and one of the biggest is a failure to own how poorly we really love. Um, Dan Allender, who's this counselor, I really enjoy a lot of his books. He said, nothing is worse than being loved by someone who knows that they love well. (laughs) Somebody that feels like, I love so well, and you must be just thrilled and happy and, and blessed to have me in your life. Nothing's worse than being loved by those kind of people. One of the major barriers to actually loving people is to think you already understand it and you do it really well. I don't want to be loved by people unless they are crying out to God, God, give me your love for this person because I don't have it in me. Right? I always tell people at weddings that, that listen, it's ridiculous to think that we can dress up in our finest clothes, that we can have all this pomp and ceremony and get your emotions whipped up into such a frenzy that you'll be able to live together for 50 years through richer and poorer and sickness and health till death you part. Nonsense. You can't do that. It's not the point of the marriage ceremony. The point of the marriage ceremony is to point you to God who loves his bride. And when you say these vows, when you enter into this this promise that you're going to love this other person, you need to at the same time be crying out, God, give me your love for this person. There's a place in the book of Hosea where God says to Israel, he says, Israel, your love for me is like the morning mist. As soon as the sun comes up, it's gone. And let me tell you, if that's how you love God, who is perfect, how do you think you're going to love another sinner? 
only if God gives you his love for that other person. And you continue to cry out for it every day. So one of the great barriers to loving is to not think you need help every day and every moment to love. That you don't need God's love for that person to fill your soul. You do not have it in you. If you think that you have to sort of go with what you've got in you, well, you'll have to default to one of these um, counterfeit loves. You won't be able to love sacrificially the way God says you're to love. So that's the first one. The second one, and it's related, I guess, is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness and self-sufficiency. And Allender puts it this way, self-righteousness is the great killer of love. We all have a strong sense of what is legitimate to ask of us. We evaluate life by two criteria. Will I hurt? And does this seem just? The bottom line is we don't like God because he asks for more than we feel is legitimate for him to ask. In fact, if God were a CEO, we would have fired him long ago. I think he gets, he gets right to the heart of what most of us actually feel like, but we're too scared to admit it. In other words, what right does God have to tell me to love my enemies or people that have hurt me? Usually we'll love until it seems unreasonable, and then we say no farther, no farther. But the question is, would you rather be comfortable or would you rather love? Often that seems like the choice between us. And all I can say is I'm glad that God did not choose comfort over love when he thought about us. All I can tell you is I'm so glad that God did not choose to stay comfortable rather than love. Or we would be in deep doo-doo, right? Another barrier is excuses. See, I think deep down we know that we are called to love and to love well. It's why we're constantly making excuses for not loving as we should. We say things like, well, if you understood my past pain, you would understand that I should be relieved of the responsibility to love. Let me tell you, I know that your past pain affects your love without a doubt. And the Bible doesn't ask you to turn a blind eye to that. And I would love to sit and talk with you and process that or Suniva or talk to my wife. But it does not relieve you from the responsibility to love. God still calls you to love. And you say, well, no one's perfect. Okay, (laughs) but you're still called to love. Well, you know, (laughs) at least I love better than so-and-so. Really? (laughs) You really think so? Is that the standard? No, the standard is God, who loved enough to give his own son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Well, how does God respond to this failure to love? And this is, you know, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I'm really running out of time to read it. But you guys know this story. There's a guy, he's going down the road, he gets beat up by robbers, he's laying at the side of the road, and then these religious people come by. And the people that in that day should have been the heroes, should have been the ones who all the, all the Jewish people listening would have said, yeah, here's, here's the good guys. They continually walk by this guy. What's interesting is when and why he tells the story. He basically is telling this, um, you know, telling the people that they need to love their neighbors themselves. And this lawyer comes up. He wants to justify himself, the Bible says. He wants to justify himself. So he asks Jesus, well, who is my neighbor? See, we're always wanting to say, we're always wanting to sort of put restrictions on what it's reasonable for God to ask us to do. And that's one of them. We'll say, well, God didn't really mean for me to love everybody. He wants me to love neighbors. He wants me to love people that are easy to love, that are close at hand, that won't, I won't really have to go out of my way. And Jesus says, well, uh, instead of answering that directly, I'm going to tell you a story. And it's a story that's very challenging because what he says is, 
you know, the person who ends up being the hero of the story and loving is the Samaritan. You remember? The Samaritan, after all these religious people have walked by, the Samaritan actually helps this guy who's laying there at the side of the road. And not only does he pick him up and he help him, he checks him into an inn and he tells the innkeeper, whatever expenses this guy incurs, charge it to my account. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus is telling this guy, you cannot wiggle out of your responsibility to love by trying to define neighbor so narrowly. He asked the guy, who was a neighbor to this, to this hurt man? And the, grudge, the guy grudgingly has to say, uh, you know, the one, who, the one who did good to him. He can't even say the Samaritan. He can't even say it. Can't, he can't even admit that this guy did the right thing. So he says, you know, but, but here's what's interesting about this story. Because it's not enough for Jesus just to tell us how to love. It's not enough for him to even tell us a cool story about how to love. What you need to understand, and what this, this lawyer trying to justify himself doesn't get at all, is that Jesus is the Samaritan. See, Jesus is the one that all the religious leaders think is the, is the, is the outcast, is the blasphemous one is the unclean one. It's one of the reasons that they crucify him, right? Jesus is the one who, when we were lying dead at the side of the road, he picks us up, he binds our wounds, and then he tells, he, he promises to, to basically, whatever expenses this one incurs, charge it to my account. See, Jesus doesn't just tell this lawyer how to love. What Jesus says, what you really need to understand is who it is that's talking to you. What you need to understand is God doesn't just tell you what to do. I'm come here to do it. See, here's the key. The real key to finding the power to love is to understand that you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. If you are a Christian here tonight, you are not your own. You've been bought with a price. Jesus Jesus rescued you when you couldn't help yourself at all. Not only that, but he pledges to care and to take care of whatever expense you will incur. You will never do something or incur a debt with God that he has not pledged to take care of. So there is, how can you look at the command to love and say, no, not going there. (laughs) No. What Jesus wants us to understand is that he is the one who has loved us like that. Therefore, therefore, we are in his debt. See, I think one of the reasons that we don't like the idea of free grace, and you might say, who wouldn't want to know, who wouldn't want to embrace this idea that God's grace saves us? But the fact is, most Christians don't really like that idea, and they're always trying to pay God back somehow. They're always trying to do this or do that or feel bad about this or feel bad about that so they can sort of pay, pay God off. The reason is because we, we know that if we're completely dependent upon grace, God's grace, he can ask us to do anything. And how can we refuse? And and that's exactly the point. If you understand the love of God, if you know and rely on the love God has for you, then you understand that he can ask you to do anything. And he asks you to love friends and enemies. A couple points on this. Um, I I, I won't even even read all of this. You know, loving friends, um, I'll, I'll make this point for sure. Often love means wounding. One of my spiritual mentors taught me a long time ago, and I'm so glad that he did, that conflict brings intimacy. Intimacy is born out of conflict. 
You may think that you have intimate relationships, but if you've never done conflict, they really are much more shallow than they should be. Intimacy brings conflict. The Bible puts it this way, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And how can you love like that? You can't love like that if you're completely dependent on that friend's approval for life. But if you know you have the approval of God, the creator of the universe, the lover of your soul, then you actually have enormous capital that you can invest and even risk in confronting people. Not so that you can pat yourself on the back and, yeah, I'm so much better than you and you really need to shape up. No, no. I'm saying the kind of confrontation that's a life-giving rebuke that costs you and risks so much for you to speak truth to this person. But that's what we're called to do. Often true love means wounding. You can't really love someone well unless you're willing for them to hate you. Do you know that? Unless you're willing for them to hate you, you will always wimp out on what real love is about. And how will you be willing for them to hate you? Only if you know the love of God will never let you go. It will never let you go. It will be there whether this person loves you today and hates you tomorrow or whether they love you today and love you tomorrow. It doesn't matter. The love of God will never leave you or forsake you. How do we love our enemies? How do we love our enemies? First point is you have enemies. (laughs) You know, one of the promises that Jesus made, if the world hated me, they will hate you. When I was a a young Christian, my mom gave me a little book of promises. had these little cards with promises called my promise box. And this, this promise I don't think was in there. But it's one of the promises, it's one of, the, it's one of Jesus' promises to help us understand reality. People will hate you. People will hate you. In Matthew 10, all men will hate you because of me. Do you believe that? Are you thinking that maybe you're the one exception to that because you're so charming? <laughs> everybody likes you. Isn't that what you're, you learn in school, how to make everybody like you? And isn't that the key to getting ahead in the music business, make everybody like you? Well, Jesus says you can't do it. You can't do it. And you won't be honest. You won't be a true friend to anybody if you think that you can do that. Um, we're going to talk more about this when we talk about forgiveness. But let me just tell you the last, last, last point. Loving your enemies is so important because it really is the door into understanding the love that God has for you. And it, and it works this way. Over and over and over again, when the Bible talks about the love, for God, uh, love of God for his people... It describes it as love for enemies. Now, we don't like that idea because we think that we're easy to love. Or maybe God is so good at it that he can, you know, he can just snap his fingers and love us. But let me tell you, what the Bible says is that God loved us while we were yet sinners. That while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. Over and over and over again, it says this sort of thing. And, and here's, here's what we have to understand Loving you took the death, the torturous death of the innocent Son of God. Jesus hung on a cross for hours in agony. That's what it took for God to love you. God could not get past your sin. He couldn't just snap his fingers and love you. Do you understand? I mean, we marvel at the creation. Do you understand that all it took for God to create was for him to speak a word? And why is it that we marvel more at the creation than we do the atoning death of Jesus? It was much more difficult. So difficult that Jesus, as he stood about to go to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Bible says that his sweat was like great drops of blood as he thought about what he was about to endure. 
So much so that when he felt the, the wrath of his father upon him on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's what it took for God to love you. The torturous death of his son. And believe me, until you actually try to love an enemy, until you actually get betrayed by a friend, you really will have very little understanding of what loving you cost Jesus. If you want to understand why love, God's love seems so abstract emotionally, it's because you've probably never connected it to the things that you would never, ever, ever allow into your life. In other words, the things that you say, I would do anything to avoid, betrayal, hurt, pain, these are all the things that Jesus willingly took to love you. And so if the love of God seems emotionally abstract, the next time you're thinking about, oh, I would do anything for this ache in my heart to go away, consider this. Jesus had the opportunity to blot us out of existence and instead, he took that ache. He took it. I love this quote by Beekner, and I'll close with this. The love for equals is a human thing, a friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely. The world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail. To rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich. Of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. Let's pray together.